the sovereignty of data refers to the fact that no matter where the data moves across borders, and you can understand where we talked a little bit about cloud computing to start with, when the data moves across to that hyperscale in another country, you still apply the laws of the country where that organization is based. So it's that idea of applying those laws and what happens in this scenario is that you can use sort of legal and technological means to make sure that you maintain the sovereignty in that data, even though it's obviously no longer in your country. Welcome to the Innovation and Compliance Podcast, part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Join us every week as we talk with industry innovators who are making compliance to help business run more efficiently and at the end of the day, more profitably. Here's your host, Tom Fox. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode. And today, I have with me Dale Waterman. And Dale is, or rather has been, in not simply tech, but data for quite some time. And he's got some great ideas, observations, and really information to give us. So, Dale, with that introduction, first of all, welcome. And thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. It's my pleasure tonight. Yeah, so that's a great point. Where are you as we're recording this pod? <laughs> yeah, so thanks very much for inviting me. Yes, I'm based in Dubai. Just as a quick introduction, I'm, as you might be able to hear, I'm originally, well, I am South African, born and bred. I spent 10 years in the UK, and I've been in the Middle East here in Dubai for the past 15 with my family. I'm an attorney by trade. The bulk of that time, particularly here in the Middle East, has been spent as an in-house counsel for Microsoft. In that time, I covered the Middle East and Africa region. So for me, that was Turkey, Pakistan, and then down to South Africa. A number of different roles there over the years, quite a, quite a long stint that I did of you know well over a decade. So originally some IP and anti-piracy type roles. I also had a, a lead role for the Digital Crimes Unit for the region. I served as the head of HQ for Middle East and Africa, looked after the local VP and her leadership team. And finally, I also had a role that was very focused on sort of being lead attorney for digital transformation and industry. So very, very much more policy regulatory kind of focused role than commercial was my time at Microsoft. I've recently transitioned to a company called Breakwater Solutions. I've now an ex-lawyer in consulting. The uh, managing director. Right You're never <laughs> You may not be so, practicing, but once a lawyer, always a lawyer. <laughs> if I was one. Yes, I'm the managing director for the Middle East and North Africa region. Breakwater helps sort of risk legal compliance and governance professionals identify data, access that data, analyze it, and then manage it. So the whole idea here is around making data more usable and actionable. The company, interestingly, is HQ'd out of Austin in Texas, and we've grown quite rapidly in the last year and a bit. So we've got offices in New York and Chicago, London, Dublin, Basel in Switzerland, and then here in Dubai. And the team is comprised kind of of three sections. So we've got a, without sounding too salesy, but we've got a sort of consulting group, which is where I sit and that focuses on things all to do with data, like cybersecurity, privacy, data governance, litigation, legal technology. And then we've got a division that produces software, so AI-infused software solutions, predominantly around data discovery and classification. And then we've got some managed services. So that's Breakwater, and that's where I'm presently focused here in the region. Dale, yeah, I wondered if we might start with your observations about changes you've seen in 
either the technological landscape or the digital transformation over the time you've been in the Middle East. I have to shout out to state capital, great state of Texas, Austin. <laughs> I mean, I think, and hopefully it doesn't sound like I'm sort of drinking from my past Kool-Aid, but I think from a technology perspective at Microsoft, and the biggest change for me was cloud computing. And I say that because obviously the company moved from a licensing company. Uh, to me, it was kind of an office and a Windows company, you know, and it managed to evolve into a, a hyperscale cloud services provider and also moved towards a subscription model. So a big change. But why I believe cloud made such a change is I think it's cloud and that, that computing power and that storage ability that's really driven the movement towards, you know, what we kind of refer to as big data, the analytics of data. And then also sort of those fourth industrial revolution technologies like artificial intelligence and IoT. So in my mind, all of that's driven or kind of powered by cloud computing, and it's made an enormous change in the world around sort of digital transformation. So for me, a big move. Now, one of the reasons I was so intrigued to visit with you is you and your colleagues use a term I had not previously heard, which is data sovereignty. And mm -hmm. as you guys have explained it, some component is about the transfer of data cross-border, but it's a little bit broader than that. So I was wondering if you could explain to us what is data sovereignty and why is it so critical now for just a U.S. multinational, but any multinational? The term is, I've talked briefly about sort of the fourth industrial revolution, and you've got these sort of data-driven technologies that we're talking about. And all of them are sort of predicated on an ability to sort of access and process data. And they need that free flow of data across borders. And so the topic of data sovereignty, and I'll get to that in a second, but firstly, let me just start by saying, you know, I completely recognize or call out the fact that nations are different. They're sovereign. They've got different cultures. They've got sort of appropriate, I guess, objectives that each of them are looking to achieve. I'd also say that there are certain kinds of data which I do believe should stay inside a country. But what we're seeing now is a trend where you're having these policies that are developing that are sort of demanding that, that data remain within borders, or they use this term data sovereignty. And they can be used interchangeably. In fact, I kind of use them interchangeably myself, but there's a slight difference. The sovereignty of data refers to the fact that no matter where the data moves across borders, and you can understand where we talked a little bit about cloud computing to start with, when the data moves across to that hyperscale in another country, you still apply the laws of the country where that organization is based. So it's that idea of applying those laws. And what happens in this scenario is that you can use sort of legal and technological means to make sure that you maintain the sovereignty in that data, even though it's obviously no longer in your country. And it would be things like encryption and key hygiene or techniques which you would have with things like cloud computing. And of course, the cloud service providers, all of the big ones, they provide a number of standards that help you achieve compliance. And so they've not only done the global standards like the NISTs and the ISO type things, but they've also done each of the local standards in countries, which allow you as a customer to adhere to local regulations if you use their services. So that's sovereignty. The slight tweak on this is more term, which we refer to more as residency or localization. And that's where not only are you sort of mandated to have that sovereignty, but you've actually got to keep 
the data within the borders of your country. And I think when most people talk about sovereignty, that's what they're thinking about, is that element of residency or localization. Let me pick up on that a little bit and focus on the geographic region you're located in, which I'm going to call MENA. Others may call it something else. But yeah. in Halliburton, we called it MENA, so that's what it is to me. Nevertheless, Middle East, North Africa. Exactly. Yeah. How are those issues viewed in the Middle East, North Africa, and in the broader EU, US, but even within the EU, different countries have different views, such as France has a very strong blocking statute. And how do you begin to think through that and more importantly, counsel companies around the differences in either uh, geo regions or in individual countries? And I think it's useful for listeners to have a little bit of insight into how these sovereignty laws have come about. In my mind, there's sort of three issues that I could share that I think shed some light on that. The first one is we've had this idea of data becoming oil, as you hear, and it obviously it feels very relevant when you're in the Middle East, but it's a new currency, it's an asset. And what's happened is governments are starting to look at data as having value. They're probably behind the tech companies who were ahead of them, but we've achieved that position now. And the interesting thing about it is it, it all depends on who in the country makes that decision because each of them has got a different perspective. What I mean by that is you can have a federal authority, you can have an industry regulator like a healthcare regulator or central bank, you can have a cybersecurity national authority, and each of them has got their perspective on why they're seeking to introduce data localization or sovereignty. And that is often has unintended consequences. So step number one is we've got this broad global move by governments to kind of aggregate data and keep control of it. And a lot of this is not negative. It can be quite altruistic. You know, they're thinking about the privacy of their citizens. They want to aggregate data to use for local services or to support SMBs. But it can also be protectionist in some cases. And obviously it can be linked to national security, which is a big one, or perhaps access by law enforcement to documents. The second trend in my mind is, is probably like a, I'm going to call it a mistrust of big tech and also concerns with access by governments to data. And unfortunately, in most cases, particularly when I'm sitting here, that tends to be a concern with the US. And that's not because they're the only ones doing surveillance, but it's because the big tech companies tend to be from the US. And so there are a couple of incidents that have, I think, highlighted this to people on the ground, you know, sort of like uh, the man in the street. So the first was Snowden, if we all remember that Snowden incident where he, as an NSA, I think he was a contract at the time, but he put three laptops under his arm in Hawaii and went off to Hong Kong. And that all led to a release of a lot of information to the world at large around just how pervasive national surveillance was. And it wasn't obviously just the U.S., it included European partners, the five-eye sort of countries as well. And in fact, the Washington Post reported you know, very strong links to some of the big tech companies in the U.S. that were apparently sharing certain bits of data. So this has caused like a distrust, and you can see how that impacted how foreign governments started thinking about their data leaving their shores and then being hosted in, for example, the U.S. The other one that comes to mind for me as an incident is the Cambridge Analytical scandal with Facebook. I presume most folks have heard about that, but obviously Facebook allowed Cambridge Analytica to gather data with a group of folks. There was no consent. They used it beyond the purpose which they'd originally achieved consent. And they also profiled each of those people's networks. So they ended up with, you know, 18, 19 million profiles. 
And then they ended up using that data, not for academic purposes, but to sell it for presidential and political campaigns. These are the things that kind of raised the awareness around privacy. And I think also spent, of course, quite a big push by governments around this issue of sovereignty. And then the last one for me is very quickly is GDPR. And GDPR, as we know from the EU, became sort of a global standard or a high watermark. The interesting thing is, I don't want to go down the privacy hole, but what happens with GDPR is it classes certain countries as third countries. So if you're in the EU and you want to transfer your personal data beyond the EU, then essentially what, what you need to do is you either need to be an adequate country, which there were only about 14, as I can recall, or you have to apply certain measures to ensure that the country that you send this data to has the same protections or you contract people. They're called standard contractual clauses. All of this, again, is created in this concept of sovereignty where the data is ours and you can't send it our, our region unless X, Y, and Z happens. And unfortunately, GDPR has been replicated across the world because it was a high watermark, lots of good things about it. And so even in this region, you've got GDPR-like or GDPR-inspired data protection laws that are being released all across the region. And each of them is introducing this idea of data sovereignty, i.e. personal data should not leave the region. And so the way that it plays out to your question, the challenging part here is that each of these laws is different. In this region particularly, maybe I can rewind this slightly. In my opinion, the way the Middle East looks at these laws, if you can imagine they're an oil-based region, they're thinking about diversity away from a dependence on oil in the future. A lot of this is based upon data and building knowledge economies and data economies. And a lot of the efforts here, regulatory efforts, are around alignment with global sort of best practices and norms including data protection. But the angle here is slightly different from the EU because in the EU, it's very, I wouldn't call it ideological, but it's principles-based, you know, uh, human rights-based. In the Middle East, it's probably more about adapting so that you can participate in this global economy. So it's very commercially kind of focused. It's like, what do we need to do to ensure that we can attract business to the Middle East and that we can trade with partners around the world? So it's, it's got a sort of a commercially-minded approach, which is probably actually a little bit closer to the US side than certainly to the EU end of the equation. So you've really identified the issues and perhaps even some of the problems slash challenges. Can I maybe flip the perspective now to either the counseling or consulting you would do, but to really focus on how do you counsel or advise businesses to comply with these very complex overlapping and even sometimes contradictory set Mm. of rules and regulations around data and, more importantly, the moving of data across borders. And it's important to think about what the impact is of the sovereignty. So if we're thinking about it from, you know, a U.S. business perspective, what I think has changed, in my opinion, for example, is things have been pretty tough in the U.S. and in Europe. Growth for 2023 is not forecast to be great. But here they're probably looking at sort of 7% across the region. You've got investors thinking about looking south, you know, rather than sort of just north, including the local wealth funds that you've got across this region. You know, as you're thinking about as an American company potentially investing here, the key bit of advice firstly would be to understand your laws. And they're quite complex and they're often quite contradictory. 
because we do get a local flavor here. So it will be GDPR, let's call it from a data protection perspective, it'll be GDPR inspired, but there will be sort of local elements that need to be addressed and can be quite complex. What becomes tricky in this region as well is there tends to be less consultation at a government level. You know, so if you think about GDPR, for example, what happened there was firstly, you've had a privacy law for a long time. Here we're going from zero to 100. We're not building on an EU directive to GDPR. What also happens is you tend to have laws released where you see drafts and you have quite lengthy consultation periods. And then you tend to have a reasonable period to actually implement the law. So you see it for two years and then you've got two years to implement. What can happen across the Middle East is historically, and I must admit it is getting slightly better, but historically you, you seldom will have consultation. And so the law just arrives, literally. And very often even the top law firms won't have visibility of that. And the implementation periods can be very short. They can be six months is what's being planned for the UAE federal law. Once the implementation regulations or executive regulations are released, Saudi's looking at a year. So that's complex. What I would suggest is, you know, definitely understand the laws. The second thing, and I think this is crucial, is to understand your data. It's really important to know what data you have, where it is, who has access, who it's being shared with. That's a foundation, and it's a foundation for any form of data protection or cybersecurity or data governance. You know, understand what data you have, then understand what your sort of crown jewels are or your highly sensitive data so that you can treat that from a risk perspective. Another tip for me would be, and it's a data protection principle in a sense, it's data minimization. Many folks will be familiar with this, but data minimization is about only collecting the data that you you need for the purpose for which you're collecting it. And what's happening in today's world is we've got a lot of storage space, computing power. We're hearing about the value of data. We're thinking we might use it in future for analytics and to create value for our companies. So we're hoarding it at enormous volumes now. And the idea here is to have policies in place that minimize that, because if you can reduce the amount of data you collect, you're obviously reducing your surface and you're reducing your risk. So be thoughtful about that. The other one is what they refer to as de-identification or anonymization of data. And the idea here, again, when you're dealing with particularly personal data, one of the tactics you have to reduce your risk is to de-identify, to anonymize that data. Because in many cases, if you're, for example, a healthcare company and you're working on trials and you're aggregating data from around the world, and you want to obviously put that together so that you can use those cool AI algorithms and start doing the predictive analysis. In many cases, you're going to have problems with sovereignty or localization. But if you de-identify the data, you actually take it outside the purview of the law. And you don't actually need the people's names involved. What you're looking for is the clinical side of things. So you can use a tactic in de-identification quite successfully. Another one for me would be the use of standards and governance is important. That might appeal to your audience. And by standards and governance, what I mean is there's this increasing responsibility. I, I kind of think of it as Sarbanes-Oxley was corporate governance. And then you started seeing sort of cybersecurity coming into the boardroom. And I think the next one is privacy, where it will kind of be top of mind. It'll be a responsibility for the boardroom. And this is where standards are useful. So if you have something like an ISO standard, the common one for this is called the Privacy Information Management System. It's PIMS. It's 27701. 
It's linked through to an information security standard. But what this does is it sets out for your board what it is they need to know, what controls are in place, what policies do you have, and ensures that sort of general awareness at a boardroom level. So I think standards can be used very effectively to help you demonstrate to regulators or to partners or to customers that you're kind of doing the right thing. Two more, one would be some thoughts around third parties. And I think in any form of risk, supply chains become quite a big theme, whether it's cybersecurity or or procurement. But third parties is a challenge around data as well, particularly around data protection, because you can't contract yourself out of your responsibility in data protection or privacy. So if you're a controller of a data and you pass it to a partner who's a processor on your behalf, Obviously, they need to go to an adequate country or they need to have these protections in place. But at the same time, although they become responsible, you're still responsible as a contractor. So from a, an organization's perspective, you need to start thinking quite carefully about who your third parties are in that supply chain because they are going to be responsible for adhering to regulations, including sovereignty. Who do they pass to? Where do they have offices in the world? So that would be another important point. And then as a final tip, of course, it would be security. So there's always a place for improving your security, making sure you're looking after data the right way, because that obviously reduces your risk in a number of different ways. Now let me so, ask you to maybe turn your head just to the left a little bit and down to 2023, 2025, or perhaps even to what I now call mid-century 2030. Mm-hmm. And ask, Mm -hmm. where do you see some of the key challenges down the road a little bit, perhaps in the shorter term, Q1 2023, but also a little bit further down the road? You mentioned privacy. I was really intrigued that that could elevate itself to the board level. But what are some of the other key challenges you see from your perspective? From a data perspective? Yes. I mean, in this part of the world or for the Middle East, The challenge is going to be that you've got this influx of new rule or new laws and regulations. And the challenge comes from the need to change culture. So what you're finding is that you've got laws released. You'll have certain stakeholders in a legal and compliance community who buy into that. But one of the biggest challenges is having buy-in from your leadership team and an understanding that that topic like corporate, you know, the Sarbanes-Oxley move and then the cybersecurity move sort of elevating privacy to a point where it's becoming part of that boardroom conversation. It means you get the buy-in, means you get the resources that you need to implement a privacy program, for example, and obviously the funding, because increasingly it's no longer just about governance and building out a program. It's very much about the operationalization of that program. And a key part of that is becoming the use of technologies. You know, the days of using spreadsheets to track stuff are gone and typically this is going to involve quite substantial investment so that the support of your boardroom is key. And another problem that we will face in the next few years, not just in Q1, will be the fact that we're having these laws released, but the implementing regulations tend to follow quite slowly. And it'll take some time for guidelines to build up and for sort of precedence to occur. So to some extent, a lot of the law firms can give advice on what the risk might be. And they're, in a sense, you know, having to look through the tea leaves a little bit. But at this point, what we're typically trying to do is build 
a pragmatic program that probably looks at it more from a global perspective. So you almost want to take that high water mark and build a program that will work for you as an organization globally and then try to implement localization elements where they might actually be needed. Other than that, I think one of the growing trends will be, and I don't think it's a negative one as a challenge, I think it's a trend, is we're going to see the convergence of cybersecurity and data governance, which people are very familiar with too, and then also privacy as sort of a, a late sibling to the party. But what we definitely need to have is less of a siloed environment. And you need to have these three disciplines sort of coming together and working a bit more effectively. Things are quite siloed here. Historically, I think privacy is, you could say, potentially owned by legal. And then you've got cybersecurity and you've obviously got a data governance team. These three entities definitely need to get into the room together and start sort of leveraging on each of their expertise and working together. I think that's something that we'll see over the coming years more and more. Could I maybe turn rather to Breakwater and ask you, not simply the work you do, but really how you help clients think through issues like data sovereignty, cross-border data transfer, and, and evolving data privacy slash protection laws? It's a consultancy. We start with a consultancy service. So typically what you'd want to do is understand your position. Now, we don't act as a law firm, but we've got folks who have got very strong understanding of regulations. And also what's really important as a global company is you want to leverage, you know, what you've learned elsewhere. So obviously in, in my region, in the Middle East and North Africa, we're very much starting, I think, the journey, but you can leverage some of the mistakes, I would call them, or learnings from Europe, for example, and implement them here. Uh, typically, we would start with essentially some kind of applicability and readiness assessment, because what you really want a customer to understand is, it sounds a bit cliched, but it's not going to be a, a destination or a project. It's kind of a journey. And so what's really important is that you start out by understanding the applicability of the laws to you being really clear about that, often in conjunction with where we can partner with your outside council. Next, you want to understand what it's going to take to build the program. And that will be shaped by your circumstances, your geos, your budget, and frankly, also your ambition level. You know, some people want to do the bare minimum, and they've got reasons for that. Other people have got loftier ambitions. They're trying to drive trust with customers, build reputations, etc. And then they'll set a slightly higher bar and maybe a, a more challenging timeline. And really what you want to do at that point is you want to set out on a journey and make sure that your boardroom or your leadership team understands where you're going. Because if you jump in like many of us do, a new law's landing, we know it's in July, we kind of sit in it. And then come May, we start hustling and it becomes a difficult two months as we kind of prepare for a law. That sort of compliance-related approach, although understandable, it doesn't really allow you the time to sort of think about your ambition and build that plan. So that's, I think, a key issue is being a little bit strategic about what you want. And then ultimately, you know, plan a roadmap and think pragmatically about where you can reduce risk first and then how you'd like to mature that program over time. And we would help with that applicability, the readiness assessment, working with law firms. We would also help with the implementation of technology and the selection of technology. We are very agnostic there. We choose what is best for a customer. And then finally, we could also help you once you've 
obtained an ambition level. So let's say whether it's privacy or data governance, but helping you maintain that, that position as well. So, you know, that's hopefully a little bit from the consulting side. We do also have the product arm. And as I've said, a key issue with whether it's cybersecurity, data protection, and governance is understanding your data. And so, you know, we do have a tool which we've launched recently in Austin called Data Protection as a Service. And what this does is it helps you discover your personal data, particularly in the unstructured data environments. And then it also helps you classify that data. So we've got that sort of technology arm that will help customers then make informed decisions about where you want to put your effort first, where you might get some more sort of bang for your buck initially as you start out on that journey. Unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode, but I was wondering before we leave, if our listeners wanted any more information on the topics you've touched on or breakwater or perhaps on yourself, what would be the best place for them to go? I mean, you're welcome to look me up on LinkedIn. I'm fairly active there, so I'll certainly pick up on direct messages. Tom, you're also welcome to share my email address. And I'm, I always welcome questions. You, you always learn from them. And I'm happy to put you in contact with colleagues who might be in your geographies as well. So anyone who'd like to learn particularly more about the Middle East and Africa, just to learn a little bit more about the region and have a conversation, I'd, I'd welcome that. Dale, I wanted to thank you again for taking the time to visit with me. This has been a fascinating discussion of data sovereignty and a lot more. I hope that we can continue this conversation. Thanks very much. If you want to stay up to date on the latest innovations in compliance and help your business run more efficiently, subscribe to this podcast and help spread the word by leaving a review.